This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, March 16, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. Reorganizing the executive branch to eliminate wasteful regulation may be a bit like reshuffling deck chairs on the Titanic. It doesn't change the trajectory. If the president and Congress want to alter the regulatory landscape, that means repealing statutes. Peter Van Doren, editor of Regulation Magazine, explains. President Trump released uh, an executive order on, uh, quote, a comprehensive plan for reorganizing the executive branch. Uh, having looked at this, what does that broadly mean to you? I'm not sure. I think there's a tendency for Republicans and for the American right to obsess about agencies and obsess about eliminating agencies and, and rhetoric of that nature. Um, uh, in the previous discussions you and I've had, I've pushed back a little against that by saying, if we look back at the history of what's usually called deregulation, it's amazing to realize how it was focused on statutes. So if you didn't like what the government was doing, you didn't focus on the out-of-control Department of Education or the out-of-control Environmental Protection Agency. Instead, you said, you wrote your congressman and you said, I want to change the law or eliminate the law. So in airline deregulation and trucking deregulation and all the deregulations of my early adulthood, we uh, rewrote the i.e. the Congress, wrestled with these statutes and rewrote them and in many cases eliminated the statutes. They just they, we, we eliminated the authority of the federal government to do X, Y, Z, and Q. So it's not like there's an agency out there that is waiting in the wings uh, for the right president to do something about it, to re-regulate airlines. It just, Congress would have to pass a statute that said, in order to operate an airline in the United States, you had to have the permission of the federal government. But that statute doesn't exist any longer. It did, but now it's gone. The same thing for oil prices and natural gas prices and, and the, again, the, the deregulation of, of my uh, early adulthood. We wrestled with the statutes and somehow now, I'm not sure why, uh, both intellectually, there's an intellectual movement that's centered about agencies, and there's also a political movement that's centered on agencies. And yet, to me, the underlying facts remind us that if you want less government, you've got to wrestle with the budget in, in appropriations and explicitly reduce spending, or you have to deauthorize through changing the statutes what it is that the agencies do. Uh, so for merely eliminating the Department of Education, but not, re not rewriting the statutes that govern the spending that it oversees um, is a waste of time. You're not re in, in a sense, you're not really cutting government. You are... You're cutting the appearance of something that some activists don't like, but you're, they're missing the point, which is um, there's just spending and statutes. The, in my view, the rest is... is uh, is is ephemeral. Uh, it's not. It is important. There, I'm not. I mean, presidents have discretion. Agencies have discretion. There, we can talk about the Chevron delegation to agencies in the Supreme. You know, we could go on and on for much longer than this podcast. But so agencies can do things. They can push the envelope a bit. But in the end, lower government or less government means hard choices. 
that often the Congress actually doesn't want to face. That that's the underlying political message, which is beating up on agencies. Presidents issuing orders saying agencies should do X and think carefully. Kind of, it's it's it makes some people feel good, but it it, it and it may let government grow even though people don't realize it. And in any case, when a president makes those kinds of these kinds of assertions, as uh, President Trump has done, looking for waste and looking for regulations that have a significant economic impact, but not necessarily uh, particular benefits to identify those. All of that can go away with the change of a White House, whereas a statute, changing a statute has a little more permanence to it. Exactly. I have nothing to, I mean, yes, you were right. Uh, again, the big government has grown tremendously since 19, right? Government has grown. The federal government has grown tremendously since 1950. But federal employment is about the same as it was in 1950. So, <laughs> Focusing on agency, you know, headlines, cut the EPA by 10,000 jobs or 6,000 jobs. If you don't alter what the Clean Air Act says and the appropriations for uh, clean water treatment plants, then it doesn't matter how many people the EPA has or doesn't have. The the underlying stuff, as it were, isn't being uh, directly wrestled with in an important way. And uh, Congress, of course, can decide not to appropriate funds, again, temporarily, to undertake certain activities of uh, administrative agencies. But Exactly. The omnibus, I mean, the, each year, this, this, the big 3,000-page budget that the Congress passes in the dead of night that no one understands till after it passes, in it are all sorts of riders that govern how appropriations are used or not used. And the Congress knows exactly, well, the members of the Appropriations Committee know exactly what all those things are or are not to do, and so do the heads of the agencies. Um, again, in Clean Air Act, um, one way to make the air cleaner is to, is to tax gasoline and tax driving or tax parking to make people drive less. And in the 70s, states wrestled with that as a possibility. And then the Congress put riders on the EPA Appropriations Act from the very get-go that said, no federal money shall be used to enforce a state ambient air quality plan that includes any of the following, parking surcharges. Uh, disincentives to drive, et cetera, et cetera. I, they wanted somehow the EPA to have magically clean up air, but don't have any obvious costs on consumers because they might not reelect us if we did that. If I understand what you're saying, you're saying that if President Trump were serious about dismantling the administrative state, as I've heard the, the phrase uh, thrown around quite a lot, uh, he needs Congress. Well, and not only needs Congress, he needs to, you need to, as my colleague Chris Edwards points out over and over again, stop talking about taxes and start talking about spending. You, you need to, I mean, the, the U.S. government is now an entitlement state with social welfare spending and it happens to have an army. <laughs> and if you take Medicare plus Medicaid plus Social Security plus defense, and start wrestling with what those laws do and why we spend what we spend and who we spend it on and do that directly, uh, then you don't need as many. The, the number of employees that you have or the directives you have to agencies, then you realize don't matter that much. It's what we do about Medicare, Medicaid, defense, uh, and uh, the rest is, is almost noise. So to offer some uh, comfort 
to those who love big government, uh, and there are many of them, there, this order, there's not a lot to it in your view. The worries on the left that all these pronouncements from Trump are mean that the, the, yeah, the government as we know it is going to go to zero within 10 months, uh, I, I do not think uh, that will be the case. So if government employment since the 1950s has remained relatively uh, stable, where has this growth uh, come from? Uh, state and local government, nonprofits, and nonprofits are, are used to administer the large state. Uh, the feds take up a lot of money and they send a lot of it back to states and local uh, state and local governments. And we've Cato's argued for years that we should just leave most of those matters to the states. Uh, the 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 process of sending all that money to Washington and then sending it back. Uh, has strings attached to it, although if you have few employees, you actually have fewer and fewer strings. Um, I think one of the most interesting uh, wrestling matches over strings or no strings is actually in education and the No Child Left Behind law, which actually is a revision of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act of 1965, which came under Lyndon Johnson. The feds have sent money to aid the education of low-income poverty areas and students since then, and the feds have strings attached. And No Child Left Behind was a revision of that act, which ratcheted up the role of testing uh, and accountability for the use of federal funds. And ironically, the only thing that, the, I mean, there, the wrestling match, which we call the stalemate in Washington, where the parties can't agree on anything, and they just shouted at each other. They did agree to revise the No Child Left Behind amendments to ESEA, and they did it in 2015. And what they could agree on is the funding should continue, but the string should be gone, <laughs> i.e., the left and the right, for different reasons, wanted accountability removed and wanted the money to continue to flow in ways that localities could use it for whatever purposes they had, much of which was not actually about low-income, poor students uh, and or their academic success. That proved to be an irritant for, from, for both sides for different reasons. And so here's a, a clear case where Congress did react. It did revise the statute. It just didn't lower spending very much, but it did lower accountability. It's not clear our listeners would think that's a good thing, but in a way that... That's the story of the last 50 years, which is the Fed sending money to states and localities and having those entities and nonprofits, in effect, do the dirty work of the federal government without it having it do directly. Peter Van Doren is editor of Regulation Magazine, now in its 40th year. Subscribe to and rate this podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.